This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're going to do one of our uh, about monthly shows where we just kind of catch up on material that's accumulating. When we interviewed Gerald Nachman, the author of the wonderful book Raised on Radio, uh, a year or so ago, I was struck by the fact that his description of how Walter Winchell put together his radio program was reminiscent of how we do it here at Radio Parallax. Yes, we do it the old-fashioned way, with a lot of clippings out of various magazines and papers and sometimes emails, and try and string them all together when we need to into a coherent program, or sometimes in our cases, a semi-coherent program. At any rate, we've got clippings everywhere, and we want to go through them methodically. Let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. The date in question is the 8th of March. I do want to digress slightly to note that it was on March 8th in 1988. The looking in the western sky of Pagan, Burma, I saw the same thing you can see now in the western sky, which is a conjunction of Venus and Jupiter. The two planets are very close together in the western sky and make quite a remarkable sight. If you haven't checked it out, please do so. It's pretty cool. And personally, it strikes me as remarkable that uh, on that date, which is now 24 years ago, a remarkable adventure began, which unfortunately I'm never going to tell you about. It was a remarkable series of events that unfortunately had an unhappy ending, but when I look up and I see Venus and Jupiter in conjunction again 24 years later, I think, well, maybe this time. Not that we believe in astrology, because we sure as hell don't, however much it might have sounded like it, but I am reminded of that great quote by Niels Bohr, who, when asked by a rather incredulous fellow physicist who noticed a horseshoe above his desk, You don't believe in a horseshoe bringing you good luck, do you? To which Bohr replied, of course not. But I understand it works even if you don't believe in it. At any rate, our date is the 8th of March, and it was on March 8th. Speaking of planets, that the great German astronomer Johannes Kepler worked out his famous third or harmonic law of planetary motions. By the way, if you can find the interview we did with author... James Conner about his wonderful book on Kepler, Kepler's Witch. Check it out. It's on our archives at radioparallax.com. We really enjoyed that one. On this date in 1957, Egypt reopened the Suez Canal, which followed the Suez Crisis, which had led to an invasion and occupation of the canal region by British, French, and Israeli troops all acting together. The U.S. government under Dwight Eisenhower decided it would not uh, condone this bit of imperialism. And we're told in no uncertain terms they would not get any support from the U.S., which might mark the last time the U.S. stood up to Israel. On March 8, 1976, a stony meteorite weighing 1,774 kilograms fell to Earth in Jilin, China, during a meteor shower. And my personal favorite, March 8, back in 1933, the American musical film 42nd Street made its premiere with elaborate dance numbers choreographed by Busby Berkeley. It was a big hit. Berkeley went on to choreograph more than two dozen films and direct more than 20. 42nd Street is chock full of great numbers, like this one. You go home and get your panties out. Go home and get my panties and away. 
Our quote today came, comes from Jay Leno, who noted a few weeks back, The Vice President of China showed up at the White House today. That's what happens when you get behind on the rent. The landlord shows up, starts looking around. And our quote today comes from uh, Leno's former pal, David Letterman, who noted on March 3rd, On this day in 1933, the motion picture King Kong premiered. And then, of course, there were so many sequels. There was that one about King Kong's son, King W. Kong. And completing our late-night uh, trifecta, our joke that it comes from Jimmy Fallon, who said, Republican Senator Orrin Hatch accused President Obama of pandering to the hipster wing of the Democratic Party, which is pretty shocking. Not that he said that, but that Orrin Hatch knows what a hipster is. Actually, we have a bonus quote, quip, and joke. This comes from Robert Shear, the great political writer who noted last year, Ironically, the United States supported Iraq when it possessed and used weapons of mass destruction and invaded it when it didn't. Our stat of the day, and this is a sad one, is that four out of five of the millions of tropical fish that are caught in the wild and then sold as pets die before or soon after they reach home aquariums. All right, we've got some further bad news to talk about in today's program, but before we do that, let's do the good, the bad and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for global warming with news that 36 parked cars, which were in an annual ice fishing competition in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, fell through thin ice on Lake Winnebago. Evidently, the warm Midwestern winter has kept many local lakes from freezing completely. Of course, I don't know much about ice fishing, but it would seem to me that before you drive your vehicle out onto a frozen lake, well, you don't base your estimations on how well it will withstand uh, the ice by... How cold it was last year, you know what I mean? Well, on the other hand, a bad week for everyone on Earth under the age of 60 after astronomers detected a 460-foot-wide asteroid that uh, apparently might just hit our planet in February of 2040. The good news is that scientists are not really sure of its path, and by the time they are, says NASA scientist Donald Yeomans, there'd be time to mount a deflection mission to alter its course. Well, I don't know, considering how little commitment we're putting into space right now in the Obama administration, we might all be forced to sit behind the plate as that hot fastball comes barreling down at us. Finally, it was an ugly week for the cruise industry with the following news. A sister ship of the capsized Costa Concordia lost power this week and was adrift in waters off the Indian Ocean that are rife with Somali pirates. Apparently, a fire in the generator room caused the Costa Allegra to lose all power of its engines, lights, and air conditioning, which allowed 
363 passengers and 413 crew to swelter for three days in 90-degree temperatures and tropical humidity. This mishap came just six weeks after the Costa Concordia capsized in the Mediterranean, killing 25. Both ships are operated by Italy's Costa Crociere Spa, which is owned by the Florida-based Carnival Corporation. And by the way, I don't know if you caught this news item. We probably shouldn't do it, but what the heck. We're not above gossip on this program. According to The Week, and this is their It Must Be True, I read it in the tabloids section, a blonde Moldovan, rumored to have been having an affair with the captain of the Costa Concordia, now admits he was romancing her shortly before the Italian cruise ship tore its hull open on a rock. Dominica Samorten told the London Daily Mail that she developed a crush on married Captain Francisco Chettino while working as a translator on the ship, and then on the fateful night, he passionately kissed her and invited her to the bridge to watch the ship closely past the island of Giglio, which is when it hit the rock. The ship's sinking ended their night of romance. And quoted Samorten as saying, Of course, I felt sorry for him. He was always kind to me. All right, as part of our ongoing continuing series of looks at the, what we would consider fiasco of the renovations of Sacramento International Airport, uh, we have a third person to sound off on this topic. We heard from Nancy Yamada two weeks ago about our people mover. We heard from uh, our friend Kevin about how he had to drive almost back to I-5 to try and park. And uh, our good pal Dr. Sean returns to the program to talk about his experience with the escalators. Welcome back, Sean. Thanks, Doug. Great to be here. What exactly happened with the uh, escalators out there? Well, we uh, arrived on the third floor, the people mover floor, and to get to the ticketing floor, which was immediately below on the second floor, it appears that that actually isn't possible. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you can, of course, um, if you were really, really good, jump onto the great flying rabbit and shimmy down his legs to get to the ticketing floor. But otherwise, you end up going down a long escalator where you get to view the ticketing area as you descend into the baggage area, which you then have to go across the baggage area and find the escalator going up one floor. Now, this isn't a great you know, a difficulty. It just seems like a rather unnecessary one. It seems so to me. So, you know, for the average Japanese tourist arriving in uh, Sacramento with their guidebook in hand, looking up at strange characters, trying to figure out what's going on, this seems like, given that it probably costs four times as much to have an extra long escalator as it does to have two shorter ones, <laughs> it doesn't seem like a really good plan. There's just no way to go from three to two. You have to go three to one to two. There may be, but... We certainly couldn't find it, and I was there with my aged father, and uh, he was just as confused as I was, and his impression wasn't particularly rosy, shall we say. I was baffled, and the signage, we had someone from Yelp describing how the signage was abysmal, and I, I certainly I imagine that you agree that it, that it, it sure is. Well, there is a, a certain I don't know, preconceived notion that if you can see the floor below you and you get onto an, an escalator, it will take you to the floor immediately below you. But, uh, you know, it is, it's full of, you know, surprises. You get to go a little further than you were expecting. And I guess in terms of, you know, a country which is 
battling obesity, a, a little bit of a walk is probably a good thing. And they may have had that in mind when they did all that. Kind of doubt it. I kind of got a feeling that's not the case. But, you know, um, you think with a billion dollars, they could have afforded a few more signs. I'm thinking a few more signs and a few less rabbits. That's my, my take on it. <laughs> and just before we go, uh, any comments on that peculiar giant red rabbit? Well, I suppose it's, you know, art is in the eye of the <laughs> beholder or something like that. Um, and if there is some connection between an airport and a giant metal rabbit, I wasn't able to see it. Perhaps that makes me part of the great unwashed. Yeah. But personally, for the amount of money that they spent on it, I'd have just assumed they took the entire sum and, you know, fed the homeless or equipped a library or replaced a street lamp. Well, Dr. Sean, thank you so much, and I'm sure you'll have to have you come back on and talk about some more stuff here in 2012. Well, looking forward to it, Doug. Take care, man. But, uh, you know, fixing up an international airport seems like a straightforward deal. When it comes to, like, working out a Byzantine, bizarre, Rube Goldberg-type arrangement for our basketball arena, we're still interested in uh, having... Kevin returned to augment his remarks from last week's show, which came off of my <laughs> phone answering machine. We couldn't reach him uh, today, but he did send an email in regards to my comment that the same local politicians that gave us this airport are trying to string together an arena deal. Said Kevin, I know, we should have a tram-type train to go from the arena to the airport parking lot so you can catch a bus to the airport tram and then walk the airport mall and then wait at the delayed flight managed by one of several American embarrassments known as our airlines. We ought to have the airline build the arena. Of course, he just found himself in Virginia Beach, Virginia, isolated because of an airline snafu, so he's not being serious. We do want to take the time here on Radio Parallax to salute the two members of the Sacramento City Council who voted against this debacle. That would be Sandy Sheedy, and Kevin McCarthy said, Sheedy, what we have in front of us is an incomplete plan that's going to scoop up every spare nickel and dime. I don't think an arena is worth putting the city general fund at risk. Said Kevin McCarthy, at this moment, I don't think this is a good enough deal for the city of Sacramento. Voting yes were Johnson, Pinnell, Schneer, Fong, Fong, Cohn, and Ashby. Of course, I was puzzled by the quote by Daryl Fong, the Sacramento Bee who after casting a yay vote apparently said, hey, don't clap, I intend to remain diligent, and I'm going to poke a lot of holes in this. Daryl, I think that means you should have voted no. Before this egregious vote, Gary Smith wrote a letter to the Beast saying, so the arena will cost $381 million to build. Well, what's it going to cost the city to build the infrastructure? Roads, electricity, water, and so forth. That subject seems to have been missed in all the over-the-top rosy projections. AEG and the Kings make lots of bucks and not a peep in the bee about the parking franchise being sold, or is it given away on the cheap for $9 million a year for 25 years? I'd suggest the city attorney take a month or so to vet the entire deal much more thoroughly. Anyway, all I did was, was <laughs> approve a look at an arena financing plan. Also sounding off on this in the bee was a man named Edward Hockery, who asked, how will we ever get people to get out of their motor vehicles 
and use light rail or public transportation if the basic premise of the arena's financial success depends on driving cars to this location. The budget line items for public transportation infrastructure and marketing on this project will disappear and be replaced with slogans that promote plenty of parking. And yes, there'll be plenty of parking in the traffic-congested I-5 parking lot, northbound and southbound. The traffic infrastructure here is already very poor, so how can we possibly promote a financial solution that depends on increased traffic through parking revenue? Also sounding off on parking was Nick Ferrari from Folsom, who wrote the B to say that some 40 years ago, Sacramento committed a horrendous blunder in locating Interstate 5 at the edge of downtown, effectively and forever cutting off the city from its riverfront. Now, the city's on the verge of committing a similar blunder by trying to shoehorn a monolithic arena between the historic I Street Depot and the historic Union Pacific Shops. Noted as the B points out in an editorial, the heart and soul of the rail yard development is the Union Pacific Shops, yet one look at the architect's renderings clearly shows that the proposed arena would visually and physically cut off any development in the shops area from the adjacent downtown area. Chris, we expect people like the Sacramento Metro Chamber board chair to write about how, uh, well, the city's economic future is at stake in this arena decision before the vote, but I was really quite taken aback to see that the B editorial board came out in favor of this vote. Said the editors, Sacramento can't stand still amid the Thule fog of the current economy. It needs to invest in its future, and it needs to invest in its urban core, jump-starting development in the downtown rail yard. I don't know. I've had enough of this. Sadly, right next to the op-ed piece uh, touting the advantages of this uh, arena decision was another special piece to the B, which actually makes this whole arena thing look sane. Piece by David Festa and Cynthia Kohler. Mr. Festa is the vice president of the West Coast Operations and Land, Water, Wildlife Program for the Environmental Defense Fund, while Ms. Kohler is the California Water Legislative Director for the Environmental Defense Fund. Apparently have some misunderstandings about the phrase defense fund because their piece was titled Bay Delta Draft Offers a First Step to Solutions. Noting the controversy over the issue, these two said there's one thing most agree upon. The status quo is unacceptable. The Delta ecosystem is in trouble and is steadily declining. Water supplies to cities and farms are not reliable. Collapse of either the ecosystem or the Delta levees could have significant impacts on water supply and the economy. Science tells us these scenarios are not only possible, but are highly probable and are possibly imminent if we don't take action to remedy the situation. They then offer the following gibberish about this giant effort to stick a bigger straw upstream of the California Delta and suck the water away. They noted that uh, whatever we said about this new plan, that it must be adaptable. Quote, Because of the uncertainties inherent in natural systems, it's imperative that both the ecosystem restoration plan and water conveyance operations plans are adaptable. That's a good word. Adaptable. Why don't we substitute a word like, say, positive. It's important that they be positive. Of course, they clarify this a little bit later in the piece, noting that when everybody wins, everybody wins. Quote, 
In order for the plan to be durable, it must address ecosystem and water supply reliability concerns while respecting the people who farm, work, and live in the Delta. Yes, that, that sounds very reassuring, doesn't it? Of course, they did note that finally, the Draft Bay Delta Conservation Technical Analysis is important, but it's only part of the solution. Quote, the BDCP is indeed a monumental effort, but we can't expect it to answer all of the problems plaguing the Delta. There are stressors outside the scope of this plan, including water quality and upstream diversions that warrant attention in the long run. Boy, this reminds me of Mark Twain's description of uh, a certain author's works as chloroform in print. In a remarkable harmonic convergence, there's an even worse guest editorial on the exact same topic in the Sacramento News and Review. This one by Timothy Quinn, Executive Director of the Association of California Water Agencies, a nonprofit statewide association of public water agencies. Mr. Quinn was remarking unfavorably about the uh, previous comments made by Bert Wilson, who's been on this show in the past and will be on again. Bert Wilson has a habit that infuriates some people. He tends to rely upon facts and logic. Said Mr. Quinn, after reading the piece by Bert Wilson, I'm not at all sure we were at the same Association of California Water Agencies meeting. Let me set the record straight. And I quote, We held a forum for ACWA's local water agency members to update them on key plans and activities for the year. Among the topics discussed was the need to invest our state water supply infrastructure. We reported on a recent survey conducted by the field research on ACWA's behalf, found that a large majority of Californians believe that we must make a major investment to upgrade and modernize our water system. That survey is available at www.acwa.com. We also reported a new coalition, Clean Water and Jobs for California, organized to educate the public about the need to invest in the state's water system to sustain and grow jobs and the economy. And then goes on to offer a lot more fluff words like the previous piece that are meant to reassure and soothe. Fatty concluded by noting that neither ACWA nor Clean Water and Jobs for California is mounting a fear-based propaganda effort. On the contrary, we're working to educate Californians about the real connection between reliable water infrastructure and jobs. Well, Radio Parallax's viewpoint, here's the deal. If you want to continue California's rampant urban sprawl, especially in Southern California, and you want to build out in the desert, which is where they're building, you need more water. Since it's not going to come out of the ground, it's not going to come from the Colorado River, it's not going to come from the Owens River, you got one place left it's going to come from, California's water projects. All of which basically depend upon pumps in the Delta. If you want to have more jobs in the construction industry and real estate industry, and in some instances farming and oil industries, you're going to need water. In particular, you're going to need more water than you're extracting now. So they want to put a bigger straw upstream. It's as simple as that. And by God, we're going to bring Burt Wilson back on this program to see if he can't set this already pretty clear picture <laughs> an even clearer framework. By the way, when we sound off on this topic and all others, 
The opinions expressed are those of the host and do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. But uh, before we go to break, I'd reiterate that that opinion is that this is a bunch of BS, political chicanery, and basically theft of Northern California water. I promise we'll lighten things a bit in our second and third segments, so don't go away. Listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett.